Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the None But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great friend Flynn McLean. So, Flynn, before we get to tonight's topic, the tunnel tour, we've got some news to discuss. Yes, we do. Stephen certainly uh, stirred the pot a little bit among, at least among the fan base, on E Street Radio yesterday, Wednesday, uh, by saying that he was supposed to be busier this year, but he's not. <laughs> Well, to be specific, he was asked a question what he was up to, and he said he didn't really have anything going on because he had expected to be busy. And then he sort of got a little like, should I say this? And Marsh tittered a little nervously, I think we could say as well. And then Steve went forward and said that, you know, he had expected to be occupied and it appears his year is now open. And that has resulted in I'm looking at the Asbury Park Press headlines that say uh bruce springsteen east street band no tour in 2020 question mark so (laughs) obviously uh, we aim to be the podcast covering breaking news in the springsteen community it seems like this is something we'll we should address yes it is yes it is um i guess a lot of us expected bruce to be on on the road this year at some point to have the album have an album out and be on on the road supporting it with the east street band but you know, even Bruce kind of hinted at that earlier, uh, certainly by saying he'll be back to his day job in the not too distant future. Well, he more than hinted at it, I would say. I mean, at the point that they're going to the band, and I think we can say this, you and I did hear a few weeks ago around the time of light of day that the band had been placed on hold and that they then had been told it's no longer needed and they're free to do what they want, which is what Steve said on the air yesterday. Right. And of course, with Steve, what he was doing with his uh, Disciples of Soul, you had, what, 15, 18 people on stage. And that's not that's not something he can just say, oh, OK, I'll get back to it now. So uh, well, and that, if, he's, and that's if th- he's a little annoyed, I can understand that. Well, I don't know if he's annoyed, but that is the thing when they make the decision to put, you know, to tell the band members, hey, don't book anything because we want to take the band out. It is having repercussions. I'm sure they don't do these things lightly, because as you note, you know, Steve might have been doing shows right now and he 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 didn't book them. No, not at all. And and we don't know exactly why, uh, why this delay or this scheduling conflict has come up. Um, we can speculate from here until. To- and, pe- and people are doing that. There are so I mean, I, one of the sillier things that keeps coming up is that they're not touring because Jessica might be in the Olympics, as if Bruce didn't know the dates of the Olympics when he put the band on hold. I mean, come on. Yeah, the, the Olympic dates have been known for a while, and it's it's definitely something they can schedule around. One of the other things that we know is, and we've heard this from very reliable sources, so I think we can say this uh, from multiple sources, in fact, they never got into booking dates. They never even had dates on hold. So even though they may have gone to the band and said, okay, we're going to hold you for a period of time in 2020, it looks like they never advanced to the point where it got really serious. Right, and they had to alert, they had to alert the band as soon as they knew that something wasn't imminent. Now that they know for sure, apparently, that it's not going to happen, at least for the near future, they've told the band, "Okay, go ahead and do what you want to do this year, which is only fair because, I mean, much like Bruce is 70, I mean, the other band members, they're also getting up there in age. And and all these guys, I'm sure they want to do what they want to do, uh, which is what they love and get out there and play some music. And if Steve's got a chance to do it, if Bruce is not going to be using him or if Max or whoever you know, give them the chance to do it. 
Right. But of course, with Stephen's big band that he had going with the Disciples of Soul, you know, getting those 15 to it was it 18 people back a bit back to see if they can do some dates. I mean, that's not exactly something you can do quickly. No, I would agree with that. And of course, now it doesn't seem like Steve will be able to do that. And that is what he indicated to Martian Rotolo that because they had had this period where he was asked apparently not to book anything. Now it's a little too late to get going for the year. So we'll see what happens with all these guys. We know Max is booking some shows. He was quoted in the Asbury Park Press article that he was going to be doing his jukebox things jukebox thing again now that uh, Bruce wasn't going out on the road. And certainly we understand the disappointment of the fan base. I mean, you and I are disappointed, but if he's not ready or if the album's not ready or whatever the reason is, look, we got to give him time and it'll come. Right. I mean, we want Bruce to come out with something with an album that he believes in and a show that he he feels is of the moment and is a show that he wants to do. So, you know, we don't want him to come out and just to go out just to go out. We want him to go out with with a purpose and quality material. And one of the things we saw with Western Stars, which we heard how many years did we hear that Western <laughs> Stars was coming long time. And then finally, when it arrived, as I think we've said before it's a brilliant album so hopefully he's got something like that in his pocket we know the band has been recording we've heard that it's pretty progressed and when the time is right they're going to be back and i'm sure we're all going to be excited about it yes we will looking forward to uh to whatever this new decade of bruce brings now the other thing that happened before we get to the tunnel tour of course there was a new archive release and the yes. archive release was from 2009 the nassau coliseum from may 4th which just happens to be my birthday. Happy birthday, Flynn. Thank you. Thank you. And you were at the show, correct? And I was at the show. And I got to say, I, I, I saw some discussion on BTX. Uh, my friend Jason said that he actually enjoyed the recording more than he enjoyed the, the show when he was actually there. And actually, I, I, that, I agree with that sentiment. That kind of hit home with me. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm really enjoying the recording, actually. I'm really enjoying the release. Um, it actually flows together as a good show, which was, which I did not get that feeling at the time. I thought, well, neither one of us really liked the 2009 tour. He was struggling where to go, how to in integrate the new material, and still and still play the play the fan favorites. And it was a disjointed set, to be sure, at, at times, especially early in the tour after he started jettisoning a lot of the working on a dream material. Well, that was what that's what makes this show or the National Coliseum show rather uh, a solid release, in my opinion, be, because it, it includes four of the new songs, most notably The Wrestler and Kingdom of Days. Now, I will say I enjoyed listening to it. I've listened through it once. I can't say that I think it's something I'm going to return to a lot, certainly compared to some of the other shows that have been released in the series. But for an early 2009 show, I think it does hit important marks first of all as you point out it has the wrestler it has kingdom of days i would say those are the two most important songs from that record that were played on that tour and it also is a show that max played the entire show and i think it's probably safe to say they that was something they were looking for well i'm sure that was definitely a factor in uh in trying to figure out what show from early in the tour to release so and and that one works i think the, this max show really really hit the spot well, and I, I took a look at Bruce Bass, and there really was not a lot of choices where Max did play the entire show, especially where those two songs were played. There was the May 23rd show that ended the leg that you and I saw together, which was a great show, but that was missing The Wrestler. 
Well, I like that show a lot too, but um, you know, if, if you're looking at that stretch of the tour and for that and for that part of his career, really, if we're looking at that era, you know, what makes those shows special would be the wrestler in, in the Kingdom of Days uh, uh, duo. Oh, for and, sure. They had to have the wrestler on there. I thought that was really the closest thing to a showstopper in that early part of the tour. The The performance is really phenomenal on that song. Yes, it is. Yes, they are. And, uh, you know, you can say that, I mean, he did swap out the wrestler for something like Racing in the Street or Incident. But, you know, let's be honest here. There are how many other tours and shows that have Racing and Incident, whereas how many have the wrestler? No, and, I think you and I both agree absolutely on these releases. They should hit certain benchmarks, much like we talked last week, that hopefully the next tunnel release will have Walk Like a Man. Right, yeah. So if we, and they're trying to hit all of Bruce's career. It's not like they only want to hit the fan favors or they only want to hit the classic era or even, you know, or only, say, 2005 to through 2013. So they really, if they're trying to hit every era, so they're going to, so this leg needed to be uh, represented here, and it was and a great choice. It, and now it is. Yes. Yes, it is. And, uh, hey, let's hope the next release could be uh, something from Tunnel with Walk Like a Man. Perhaps, and that's going to be a perfect segue to go back to our discussion of the Tunnel Tour, where we left off last time. We talked about the shows in Worcester, specifically the opening night. After Worcester, Bruce moved on and went to Chapel Hill, and from there, the tour continued through the United States. Well, we have to observe a certain special moment for the second night in Chapel Hill. Yes, I was going to let you take this. <laughs> Go ahead. That was my first show. So, and so, yeah, that will always hold a special, a, a very special place in my heart. And uh, especially with looking back on it now, I mean, it was a very standard tunnel set list, but it had can't help falling in love. And I wish I could remember more about it, about that show, but... I was just in, in awe of what I was seeing. So not a lot of memory, concrete memories. Uh, I, I Believe me, I get you on that. And I, <laughs> I, there, that first Springsteen show, especially if you were lucky enough to see him in the 80s as, as we were, there was just such a power when he walked out on stage. It really was, you know, it's it, it's a moment that it sounds kind of corny, but it, it really it, it was sort of life changing at the time. I mean, it certainly changed my life and I think it changed yours that first just, moment. Yeah, just a little bit. Well, well, one thing I do want to say about the about the way the Tunnel of Love show opened is it wasn't like the, the lights went out and and then a spotlight came on to the back of the stage and each band member came on. Um, you know, like today, and we're you know they each kind of bask in the in the audience adoration and wave to, and wave to the crowd, yada yada yada. The uh, you know Max and Roy came out first, and 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 Roy started playing that uh, that intro music, the one note at a time, and that really built up the anticipation way more than than I would have thought. Yeah, well, and as we discussed last time, that was a very theatrical opening with the sat piece of the ticket booth and Terry McGovern acting as the ticket barker, giving each band member their ticket to the show as as they entered. It it was it was a very powerful opening. It was, and you know, maybe, and, and maybe powerful might not be the right term, but certainly very. I mean, the anticipation just rising just exponentially as each band member came on stage. Oh, I, I thought it was powerful. I mean, I remember, you know, that first night in Worcester when Bruce finally walked out on that stage. 
the just the elation and the, and the crowd's energy. It was it was it was that you know look that's that's why he is who he is, and that's why those shows were so great, and that's why we're all here thirty years later. <laughs> all very true. All very true. So, but let's talk about the U.S. tour after uh, after he got done wowing you for the first time. Yeah, and I went went home on the bus and could barely could barely sleep for like two days. But that's a, that's a, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll cover that in a later episode. Exactly. So, and after Carolina, then the tour starts to move throughout the U.S. The show was remarkably consistent. Bruce had certainly done tours, even as the Darkness tour. He didn't do massive changes from night to night necessarily, but there were changes. Here, the show was very structured, as we discussed in the first episode. And it really wasn't until he got to Chicago that there were any significant changes to the show. The Second Night in Chicago, which is a show that I saw and one of my favorite shows of all time, he did sub in Darkness and Backstreets. It was St. Patrick's Day. The place was just, the place was on fire. They were drunk. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it was Chicago and St. Patrick's Day. You bet your ass they were drunk. (laughs) Yep, and then Darkness replaces Seeds, and uh, Backstreets replaces Walk Like a Man. I just want to be clear, I was not drunk, but go on. I don't think you've ever been drunk at a brew show. No, probably not. You're right. I've never been drunk at a brew show, so... I can I can say that with 100% certainty. Um, so yeah, we got darkness and and backstreets in there, and they and they they popped up a few times, or at least darkness on, did for about a few weeks. And uh, and backstreets certainly became a regular throughout the end of the tour. Right, and backstreets was introduced as this is for the old fans. The story that had was that a fan had gotten up to Bruce's hotel room, slipped a note under the door saying that Backstreet's was his favorite so- song and it meant a lot to him. And that was what led Bruce to play it and and led to that intro. Yeah, and then Bruce, actually in the Rolling Stone interview that Bruce did in May of 88, or I guess the interview was in March of 88, he was, uh, he, talked about, he was surprised about how this fan was able to get up to his hotel room and actually get it under the door. But um you know, hey, it got us backstreets a few times, so very cool. And, now it uh, did re- it did replace "Walk Like a Man," which, as you and I discussed in the previous episode, was a really key song in the set. So it was one of those things like, "Hey, backstreets was being played. That's great." But of course, there was also this significant subtraction from the record. But what happened was, in most of the cities, because he was playing two shows, one got "Walk Like a Man" and one got backstreets. Right. Right. And then there was one other addition to the encore, which was Raise Your Hand. That yes. ended up, I think, I think he, he first played that one in Philadelphia. And it, I believe it was basically played every night throughout, throughout the tour, all the way through August 3rd in, uh, in Barcelona. So let's not also forget that night. There was St. Patrick's Day in the middle of Rosalita. They broke into an Irish jig. One of the great things I've ever seen. That was pretty cool. I've, I've, I wasn't there, but through the magic of bootlegging, I, I have heard that. And yeah, that does sound like a lot of fun. It, that was that show was a blast. And the tour continued. And in early April, there was a run of shows. I think it was four was a four or five where the set was exactly the same. The first time that ever happened at a Springsteen show. Well, before we go on to, to that, I think another another cool addition, maybe not a major addition, but certainly a cool one was Ain't Got You as the intro to uh, to She's the One. Oh, that's true. Yes, because that didn't that didn't start. I mean, I'm looking at Bruce Bass now, and um, you know the he he did Who Do You Love as an intro in, in the second night in Atlanta on March 23rd, and but then it was the next show in, in Lexington, Kentucky, 
where he he did ain't got you so we got another tunnel song in in the set well at least so, a piece of a tunnel song well i guess by the time he got to the west coast he was doing like two-thirds of the song so it's it was more than just the one verse that first popped up in in late march and early april so i'm going to count it as a as a full song from the album for, for that spot there okay well i'll give you that and but speaking of the west coast when the tour rolled into los angeles where they played five nights that's where the first really significant changes other than the darkness and the backstreets occur on the tour and he really changes the tone of the encore here by dropping the medley and instead he adds in the sonics have love will travel one of the great east street band covers of all time and he also brings 10th Avenue back into the set. He does Sweet Soul Music as a separate song. So it, it really takes on a bit of a different tone with Have Love Will Travel in there. And it was perfectly suited for the show. Yeah, well, Have Love Will Travel kind of goes along with that bravado I was talking about um, uh, on our last episode where he had kind of he, he had a chip on his shoulder and he might have been playing with it, playing with uh, that kind of attitude on the song. But it was definitely there. Oh, totally. And again, a bit more of a theatrical element to the show, I think, than some of the stuff he'd done in the past. In, in keeping with what he was doing on the tour, the intro would be, you know, we didn't take any fancy rock star airplanes and, and all that stuff. It was it was highly entertaining, for one thing. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And of course, the show that uh, where we had the encore shakeup was released by Nugs. That was the April 23rd, 1988 show. And it's it's unusual because had they gone for one show previous, we would have gotten Walk Like a Man, but we would have gotten the Detroit medley. Or if they'd gone two shows later, we would have gotten Across the Borderline. Um, Across the Borderline is another song from the Tunnel Tour that is missing from the official archive series. While probably not as important as Walk Like a Man, which, of course, was on the record, I do hope eventually we get a official version of Across the Borderline as well. And I, I'm hoping, I don't, I'm don't not going to assume, but I'm hoping that'll be the, the release, the May 22nd, 1988 show, which would be almost, not almost, it would be the exact same show as the 23rd, except for Across the Borderline in place of Backstreet's. But that was, those two were such great shows that uh, I'd be okay with that. Well, of course, as you know, I want a show from the Garden with Crying, but let's not get into that right now. No. Well, hopefully we'll get that at some point, too. I want, you know, we want it all, Hal. Yes. We want it all. Or nothing at all. Actually, we want everything. So we, we want no, yeah, I'll settle for whatever they'll give us, but I want it all. <laughs> and from uh from LA, they go on up to Mountain View, California. I believe that's the Bay Area. And uh in May 3rd, the show on May 3rd, 1988, gave us one of the most famous bootlegs, actually, from that tour, Roses and Broken Hearts, which if only because of the fact that it's it's more or less a soundboard. And it also captured some stuff in the encores, which in light of the consistency of the set really came out of nowhere. Right. I mean, he it seemed like little, little Latin loopy Lou just Bruce didn't know exactly where to go. And he did it. And they I feel like they were just kind of figuring out, figuring it out on stage as, as they went along. <laughs> oh, I, I definitely agree. Listening to that, it's pretty clear they're flying by the seat of his. He's flying by the seat of his pants there. And then Twist and Shout also made his tour debut that night. 
What I love on that show, when I listen to the recording at the end of Little Adam Loopy Lou, when he's sort of vamping, trying to figure out what to play, he's talking to someone. It's not clear who. It could be a band member or maybe someone off stage. And someone is feeding him song suggestions or something. And he's going like, wait, we played that one already, right? And and, <laughs> and then he finally, he and he says like, uh, it's got to be something rocking, baby. And then they go into twist and shout. So I that really, that's a good listen. Yes, it is. And certainly the fact that it's a uh, it's it's soundboard esque it might be too clean for some people. But uh, but the encores are from a different source and from from an audience source. And those those sound amazing as well. Thanks. Uh, thank you to Mark Persick for his work on that one. <laughs> Love that. Now, yes. May has several very key shows. I was at one of them on May 13th in Indianapolis. Bruce was celebrating his anniversary, which we did not know at the time was his third and final anniversary. I'm not sure celebrating is the right word, but okay. <laughs> he was he was very fired up that night. Again, as I said last week, I was 19 when this show took place. I wasn't really thinking about the state of his marriage or anything like that. Listening to that show now, it is very clear that he was very fired up and that there was something going on in his life. He tells the story during You Can Look about a, a wife buying steak knives to stab her hubby with. I mean, these are not feel good things going on. No, and, he, and that was and he was laughing at that. He was talking about that in a very kind of dark, humorous way. Yes. It, uh, and so, yeah, talk about the home, the home shopping network. I yeah, believe, he right? said it, it, exactly. I'm looking at it now. He says you're going to get a free set of steak knives to stab your hubby with. That's, While he sleeps. <laughs> I mean, not uh, whatever was going on there. Clearly, there were not good vibes on that anniversary. Uh, and, and, not... and he was taking it out in the performance. I mean, that much, I think, is clear. There was there was a fire and an intensity, as, as uh, which I think built on the American leg and culminated at the garden, as we talked about uh, with the light of day and the born to be wild there. There was just an intensity in these performances that really... Uh, Bruce is a very intense performer. We know that, but I don't know in, in the reunion era, has he hit that intensity on a nightly basis like that? Not nightly. No, I, mean, I, I would agree with you. If, I mean, maybe a few nights here and there, but nothing, nothing on any kind of consistent level like he was then. But, you know, when the, go ahead. Well, I was going to say one of the key additions to the set at this point was boom, boom. Oh yeah. Well, Which, and that's another song reflective of what obviously must've been going on. Okay, well, to me, it, it was it took on a a most a, a much more lustier feel to the start of the set, especially when you had going right into boom boom from tunnel and then from boom boom in, into Adam. I mean, that oh, was I completely agree. I mean, when I saw boom boom the first time, I may have been nineteen, but it did that was much more of a song. How can I put this gently? We're a show that's not rated, but boom boom really was a song like. And now we know he was singing to Patty. It was it was not an act. Basically, to me, that song, especially when I hear it now, it's like you know. I really want to take you and uh, we'll stop right there. But it's a very sexual song. Yes, not exactly subtle. How no. about that? Shoot you right down. But yeah, it was added. I mean, he he, he debuted it in, uh, in what, Minneapolis? Yeah, and it's saying something, I have to say, very different than Be True. Oh, uh, just a little bit. Just a little <laughs> bit there. But, on, you know, and I mean, we can, we can take this one step further beyond the, the lusty feels that he... 
that song really showcased some of his guitar skills. Oh yeah. And, I, well, again, especially we when just going saying, from, everything, everything on this tour was just uh, hyper intense. Yeah, and, and especially going from Boom Woman to Adam. I mean, they really he took his guitar playing to a whole new level just with, on those two songs every night. Totally. I, I just think this was a man who had something going on in his life. And as sometimes people do, they pour themselves into their work. And he was just he he was tearing through it. I, there was just it, uh, whether it was cathartic or whatever was going on or was the ex excitement that there was his new relationship with Patty or I have no idea. But it was reflected in, in what was going on on the stage. Well, if we're going to talk about that, then we need to go back to March and April where they he wasn't putting that kind of emotion in, into the shows. I mean, I guess the the pinnacle of that is it was the Nassau Coliseum shows from April 1, 1st and 2nd, 88. Right. Those are kind of regarded as like two of the weakest shows he's he's ever done with the E Street Band. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I was not at those shows and listening to them. It's not certainly as obvious. But I, I take the word of people who were at those shows. That was not Bruce at his best. No, and I get that. And and again, there was obviously some stuff going on in his life, and you don't know how it gets reflected. And at that point, he may have still been working it out. And by the time they got to his anniversary, you know, maybe there was some sense of resolution. We're never going to know. Obviously, he's not talking about what happened with Julianne, other than the short passage in the book. Very short passage. But... It, he obviously had come through it and and the intensity came out in those May performances that you're right, may not have been there in April. No, they weren't at all. They weren't at all. And I think the, that and the, we move on to the garden stand and that, uh, you know, if there's any shows I really wish I could have attended, it's, it's, it's those five. Yeah, I always wished I had seen some of those garden shows. I mean, the unique covers there, the, the manner in which Light of Day was played. It, there was something going on there. Uh, they really sort of peaked there. And, and the interesting thing, which we're going to talk about more, obviously, as the year goes on, because these represent the final performances of the E Street Band for at least that period of time, it seemed like they really did peak at the Garden. Hmm. Um, I hadn't thought of it. I had not thought of it that way, to be perfectly honest. Well, you would agree, uh, and we're going to get to Europe, the performances in Europe, while they were very strong, uh, especially because he shifted the tone of the set quite a bit, the intensity and and the performance probably peaked at the Garden. Yes, and I think, especially in Europe, when he when he dropped two faces and one step up, uh, they were still great shows and those, they were intense. But having those two songs in the set as they were at the Garden made them just even a little bit more intense, maybe in a, in a slower, simmering way. Oh, yeah, I agree. And, and look, the garden represents something as a venue. It represents something for Bruce. It represents something for a lot of other artists. And he clearly poured himself into those five shows. You know, again, looking at the selections and the, and the performance of crying and the lonely teardrops, maybe he did recognize at the time because they were going to stadiums that the show was not going to be able to be quite the same. And he wanted those final performances in that format to to be really really big oh interesting and certainly the fact that those were the only shows i guess those shows in the in the national coliseum shows were the only ones near new jersey well i guess philadelphia too but he didn't play new jersey on that tour at all 
Well, the question is, and this will be something to discuss as Europe goes on, did they know at that point they weren't going to play Jersey? Because at the time, there was always talk that they would return to Jersey. Of course, at some point, they agreed to do the amnesty tour and 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 they changed course. It was probably already before that because you would think that, that a, mag- a tour of that magnitude was probably set up fairly early, but that that's not information that's publicly available. Well, I remember... Reading in Backstreets, Max did one of his uh, his lectures, but this was back in the, I guess, the early to mid-90s. And someone did ask him about that, and he said, yeah, they, they had five nights booked at the Meadowlands for for the fall. So, yeah, and, and there were rumors of that all along. I do remember that. Yeah, and certainly that, you know, it's that's the pattern. Play the U.S., go to Europe, come back to the U.S. So uh, it would not have exactly... Uh, would <laughs> not have been out of left field totally, but uh, it was a disappointment that it did not continue after after that. So we we should talk about Europe, don't you think? Absolutely. Let's let's cross the pond. So the first show took place in Turin. That show actually was pretty close to what had been played at the Garden, although he didn't do any of the unique covers there, and he added in because an item to the second set. Yeah, he replaced part man, part monkey with because the night, which. Yeah. I can, I can understand. I didn't. I kind of doubt if the European audiences would have been familiar with with Inherit the Wind or the or the Scopus Monkey trial in general. So that probably worked well. From Turin, they went to Rome for two shows, and in the first show, it's pretty much the same show as Turin, except he does add Bobby Jean, the first of the Born in the USA war horses, to get reintroduced to the show, and then the second night, a very significant change, I think, and one that does start to change the direction of the tour. He drops two faces and plays the river. Yeah, and that was between Bobby Jean and the river. That was a major step towards the Born in the USA stadium tour, you know, part two in Europe. And, uh, you know, those, it would, at the time it was the, the thought was that these were the slower songs that, the, that would get lost in the stadiums. And, uh, and that would make sense. I mean, One Step Up kind of disappeared about a week later, so... Not even a week later. Yeah, and of course, we didn't see any of these shows in Europe, so it's hard to know how they played. I'm sure people enjoyed them. As we've said, the band was playing extremely well at the time. They were big venues, but the show does really start to take a different feel, and it was so unique in the States that it's sort of a shame that much of Europe didn't get to experience that kind of tight narrative. Yeah, they they really did miss something. And I think... I remember reading in the in the Backstreet's magazine at the time about how I guess it was Oslo, the show in Oslo, where the, the Tunnel of Love album had sold quite a bit. I think I think the phrase was more per capita than any other country in Europe, and so there were some some disappointed fans who didn't get to see stuff like Two Faces and One Step Up and Walk Like a Man. I can certainly see why the fans were disappointed there. And something else happened in Rome that was not a part of the show, but I do think had an impact on Bruce and Patty and the band at certainly Bruce and Patty. And that's that Bruce and Patty went out on a balcony in their underwear and were photographed by the paparazzi. And to put it mildly, there was a frenzy of attention after that. Yes, there was obviously the national Enquirer was all over it. Certainly it appeared even on the Washington post and people magazine ran a cover story that fall. So, so yeah, the people were quite interested in what they were doing. 
Now, Bruce has never really spoken about this, except to say that sometimes you get so internal to yourself that you do things that you're not really thinking about, obviously referring to being out on the balcony in his underwear. He was one of the most famous men in the world at that point, one of the biggest rock stars in the world. I think if he'd really stopped to think about it, he would have been like, okay, this, we should not go out there, but yet they did. And the firestorm resulted, of course, now the word was out that Bruce and Patty were together. We'll never know. I mean, it'd be interesting to know how that impacted the band. I think the band knew already, but now that it was public, definitely it was a whole new level. Right. You got to you got to wonder how it affected the the dynamic with, within the band itself. I mean, um, they probably knew weeks earlier, if not months earlier, that what was going on. So I'm sure it changed the dynamic once uh, once the public was in on their secret. Now, do you think it had any impact at all on the show? The fact that this happened? Well, I, th- uh, I think the impact on the show was probably more, in, at least we, you know, with the addition of Boom Boom and certainly the, the Have Love Will Travel, that kind of bravado feel to the show. I mean, he was really letting loose in, at the garden, as, as, as we discussed. So uh, I think once I got to Europe, there was all the changes, changes were more, more organic to the move from arenas to stadiums. Not to say that there weren't some cool songs dropped into the set because he gets to Rotterdam in late June and there he introduces Chimes of Freedom, which would ultimately become the song that he used to announce the Amnesty Tour. And he also, for the first time since 78, opens the second set with Paradise by the Sea. So those are cool nuggets, but it is a totally different concept than he had been doing in the States. Yes, yeah, so it definitely had more of the of a party feel, the intensity that we that we so much enjoyed on on in the U.S. was replaced by more of a, of a party atmosphere, and you know, and that's what stadiums stadiums tend to do to to concerts. They take away the the kind of low burning intensity and bring in the party atmosphere. I think it does become a party, and if you look at, by the time he gets to the first night in Stockholm. Have Love Will Travel is dropped from the encores, and this this is the sequence of song in the encores. Born to Run, which of course was still being played acoustic, Hungry Heart, Glory Days, Bobby Jean, Cadillac Ranch, 10th Avenue. It's basically, that section of the show has basically become like a greatest hits show. Well, except for, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend Bruce here or on, his, uh, on his USA album inclusions here. Okay, go And ahead. that is, they, they, were his, they were on his most recent second most recent album it's not like they he was pulling out 20 year old songs at that point no those were classics from the or from they were, they were popular songs from his last album you know you know what i'm saying i mean we call oh, them I, war, we call well, them war horses now because they are well and i'm sure a lot of people were very excited to see those songs the the question is artistically i think from where we were in the United States, which was a very, very specific narrative, as we stressed last time, and where we are here, it's two totally different concepts. Now, for me personally, I have to say I prefer the very tight narrative of the United States, even though I understand here he's playing in 80,000-seat stadiums, he's not playing in arenas, and that's a lot of the reason for what's happening. Okay. Well, I I also give a, a pass on on the encores. I mean, as you just said, that is kind of a greatest hit on greatest hits encore. But it's an encore to me. Those are supposed to be the big parties. Um, whereas he still kind of he still kept in 
the Adam Razor Kane uh, seeds cover me brilliant disguise that whole sequence of songs that still had that that intensity just not as much as it did two months earlier oh that's for sure and we don't want to go too far afield here I mean the band was playing very well these were very entertaining shows so you know, it's sort of, it is what it is at a, at a certain point. And what we've seen at other points in Bruce's career where he's had tight narratives, he he does loosen them up after a while. It just, to me, it's a, sh- a little bit of a shame, as you said, that the Tunnel of Love record, which to me is a personal favorite, sort of gets lost here in these stadiums. As I mentioned earlier, I was I remember reading the reviews of the album in Backstreet's Magazine, and one of them called that the, the songs on Tunnel of Love were the types of songs that were talked through on the Born of the USA tour. And so once it got to these open air stadiums, it, you know, makes total sense that they got dropped. Now, Stockholm, the second show is an interesting show. And of course it's been released as an archive. Well, we, we start with the fact that it was just Bruce's first radio broadcast in 10 years. That's true. So although they only the first half of the show, and only the first half of the show, but you know we'll take what we can get. And while I'm talking about it, I have to give full sh- full props, full sh- full shout out to my dad for taping it at the time. I uh, I had to go to baseball camp, so sleepaway baseball camp. So my dad was in charge of taping, and he did a very great job. I I, I need to say so. Props to Mr. McLean. Well, I taped that show myself. I will say that, and I hopefully did as good a job as your dad did. But I'm sure you did, Hal. I'm such sure a bummer did. that day. Well, it was it was really cool that we got to hear the show, and he of course announced the amnesty tour at the end of the first set, and then they killed the broadcast. We later learned, I think it was via the Backstreet Hotline, that the show had gone on for hours. Of course, there was a second set which we knew we were missing, but the second set and the encores were like really long at that show and he did quarter to three for the first time in a while it was it was too bad they didn't broadcast the entire show but as we know many many years later now they have corrected that yes and it's uh it was i think it was one of the longest shows i think at, at the time since since the nassau coliseum shows that that ended the 1980 new year's know, eve new year's eve right so and it was great to finally hear the rest of the show and the quality that 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 it was meant to be heard in. I mean, I knew every single second of that uh, of those ninety minutes of the broadcast, so which I listened to over and over and over again, and even listened to it, you know, as an adult. So uh, I was ready to hear more of that show, and it did not disappoint. Not and at all. Inter- Interestingly, it really does demonstrate the change in the type of show he was doing from the U.S. If you compare the Garden release to Stockholm. Even something like the start of the second set. Now, Tougher Than the Rest is still played in Stockholm, but the set starting with Paradise by the Sea, which is certainly a, a party type of song, as opposed to the intensity of Tougher Than the Rest, it really alters the feel of the show. It really did. And, and coming out of uh, Paradise by the Sea, I thought the Who Do You Love into She's the One was even more, even more intense than, than in following Tougher, which I didn't think was possible. Now, another show that we should discuss, which definitely had a party atmosphere, but was the furthest thing you could imagine from a party, was the show that took place in East Berlin on July 19th, 1988, which quite possibly may be the most important show of Bruce's career. I know most people would say The Bottom Line or The Roxy or one of those early shows, but in terms of actual impact on the world, it may very well be East Berlin. Really? I mean, people know I have a pretty Bruce-centric view of the world, but that's 
that's a pretty big statement right there. It is a big statement, but I think what happened was it exposed the East Germans to the type of art they weren't experiencing. And there was a restlessness going on, which was the whole reason why the government allowed Bruce to come in there and play to begin with. And there, there was this groundswell building against this authoritarian regime and in walks Bruce. And it has an impact. Didn't I see on the Backstreet's news page today that yes, there is did. now a play that actually talks? Oh, yeah, it's called Born in East Berlin that looks at the impact that show had. Right. And that's I think it's uh, as I'm looking at that news item as well. There was a, basically uh, a whole book about that one show about Bruce's July 19th show called Rock in the Wall. I mean, it sounds like they just took that that one concert and all the circumstances around it and made it made it and con- consolidated into a book by Eric Kirschbaum. And I'm going to have to read that book. I haven't yet. I'm going to have to check that one out soon. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. And, and you would think that really, could that be possible? I mean, the fall of the wall is probably the most significant historical event of the latter part of the 20th century. It totally changed the world. And you know, to think that Bruce was in any way even a small spark for that. I I mean, it's sort of mind boggling to think about, but, you know, there is much evidence and a lot of people who have written about this and they do think that it is. I'm not sure where I fall in that argument. I certainly believe that there was, the momentum was going in that direction anyway. And and then they had what, 350,000 people there? Wasn't it, that was the largest crowd Bruce has, had ever played for? Yeah. So, so in terms of that, in terms of having that many people out at a concert, experience that experiencing rock and roll and that kind of rock and roll freedom, I'm sure it didn't exactly uh, didn't exactly stem the tide at all. Probably, well, and it, as and you said, imp- it did encourage it. And it's important to point out the government tried to co-op the situation. He played under the name Concert for Nicaragua, <laughs> which uh, apparently upset Bruce, understandably so. And he gave a speech in German that, and I'm quoting now, not being here for, for against any certain government, but to play rock and roll for you East Berliners in the hope that one day all barriers will be torn down. Now, that statement, I think, is widely viewed as one of the key things that if he was a spark, you know, that was not the kind of thing being said in East Berlin in 1988 openly. And he said it and we, history will never know for sure how big of an impact that had, but as we know, not too far after the wall came down. Yeah. Well, I would certainly consider it a contributing factor, but when, when was Reagan's tear down this wall speech? Was that 87? Yeah, Reagan gave the uh, tear down this wall speech in June of 1987, and that is is highlighted all over Berlin. I went to the Checkpoint Charlie Museum when I was there. Obviously, this is a different podcast, but there's a whole room dedicated to that speech. So, uh, of course, that is a very, very important event as well. But I do. But that, of course, took place. It took place at the wall, but it took place on the West German side of the wall. Bruce's speech in East Berlin was in front of a massive crowd, as you note. That show was even televised, though not surprisingly, the speech was censored from the broadcast. Still, I don't think there's any doubt that what he said was well known among the population. No, not at all. With with 300, 350,000 people there, I'm sure word got out of whatever he did or said on stage. And I doubt that that's a show that the organization has for obvious reasons. There was certainly no rec- mobile recording vehicle in East Berlin in 1988. But in any format, if you're talking about the archive series, 
that would be an incredibly important show to release if they have it in yeah, any even, form. Yeah, even if they just have the a, t- a two track, uh, you know, two track stereo mix from just from the soundboard, that would be more than sufficient for 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 this purpose. But as you said, it was I mean it was broadcast on on East German television and radio, so you know of course it was the TV was. <laughs> they spend half the time focusing on Bruce and the other half focusing on the a wide shot of the crowd. But well, and that, so it's and, not exactly and with a f- weir- very weird sound mix, again, we're talking about East Germany, 1988, uh, the very weird sound mix that when they were on Bruce, you get normal sound. And when you cut to the crowd, it was sort of like a, a distant audio of what was happening on the stage. Well, yeah, it sounded like an audience recording when they went to one of those audience wide shots. So, um, yeah, I was, would love to have that one in some kind of consistent, high-quality audio. So one day, maybe. Now, another thing that happened in 1988 while I was in Europe, which is kind of cool, he went out on the street several times with street musicians and played, which um, at the time he was probably the biggest rock star on the planet. That's um, just really cool to do. Yeah, he did it twice, right? It was just only twice or was it three times? Uh, I don't. Well, he did it in Copenhagen. I'd have to go back and check. I know he did it in Copenhagen. He did three songs, I'm on Fire, The River, and Dancing in the Dark. How many other times did he do it? We'd have to check. Oh, uh, he did it. also did it in Rome, Italy. Okay. Um, with, he did I'm on Fire, The River, and, and Dancing in the Dark. So, hey, he, you know, he was just out uh, walking the city, really taking it, taking everything in. He saw some, some street musician playing, probably playing one of his songs, and he said, hey, or, or did they recognize him? Or did the musician recognize him? I don't remember, to be honest. Well, it would be hard to think that Bruce was walking around on the streets and wasn't recognized, but really, who the hell knows and does it matter? <laughs> no, it doesn't, just as long as he, uh, he he gave those street musicians a real thrill. And some of it's been videotaped, and uh, we've been able to enjoy it since. Yeah, no, that's on YouTube. You can go look for it. <laughs> and I remember when it was when it wasn't on YouTube, when it was just out on video that you had to get from a friend. Yes. Well, the world has changed, Flynn. We understand. Just a little, just a little bit. All right. So, and then with the rest of Europe, the tour continued with this pattern. He started where he started bringing in more of the war horses and lessening the impact of the original tunnel set. He started doing Thunder Road. He started doing Badlands. I think he even did Born to Run full band once, right? Uh, more than once. Uh, he more than he once. actually... He did it in East Berlin. I think that was that may have been the first time he did it. Well, that I, I, that's an exception to me, I think, just because that was a different type of show. And obviously he was not going to go do the Tunnel of Love set in East Berlin. Well, no, it was definitely bigger than uh, than a Tunnel of Love, than a normal Tunnel of Love show. And and he, he rose, he wrote, he certainly rose to the occasion. But uh, a full band Born to Run was played, uh, I think, at least in Spain, if if not uh, at some of the other shows in those two weeks. See, to me, on terms of the tunnel tour itself, the fact that he actually went to the full band Born to Run, that's, again, just another perfect perfect example of what we've been saying, because the acoustic Born to Run was such a key component to that set and to what he was doing and that he was going to do this song in a different form than he had done before because that was his job, and now he was out there doing the songs the way they had been done previously and playing a lot of the songs that had been done the previous seven to eight years. So nothing wrong with that, but a totally different mindset. 
Right. It was uh he wasn't he, he was no longer singing a new song. So it was back to the old war horse and hey, you know, in a in a nice big stadium, the the full band Born to Run is damn powerful. Always one of my favorite moments when I when I when I see it. How one more thing that I haven't pointed out yet. Yeah. Is that uh on the Tunnel of Love tour, Bruce did Bruce did something that your boy Bono has been doing for years and that's it that's dropping in snippets of other songs. That is true. And I, I got to say, those those provide some some pretty cool moments. I mean, obviously, we talked about the the Ian, Ian and Sylvia. What what what's that song at the end of Part Monkey? Part Man, Part Monkey. Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. Hold oh, on. Love is Strange. Yeah, Love, love is Strange. Strange. Thank you. Yeah, that was a. The, yeah, that was the first one, and then he had added in uh, the lyrics from "Give Me Shelter" to the end of "Cover Me." Right, we did talk about that on the last episode. Right. And one of the ones that always gets overlooked was the addition of the tears of a clown lyrics. Um, if you see a smile on my face, it's just a hide a sad expression that he started doing uh, in early to mid July. And then at the end of the song, Tunnel of Love. And I always felt that one. It was only two lines. He only did it maybe a handful of times. But I always loved those those performances. That actually was really good, especially I mean, since it was only a couple of lines, but it did add something to the song. And it really, and not to mention the fact that it, I think those lines, at least from from my analysis and my perspective of of the tour and of what was going on with him off stage or and kind of on stage, that uh, you know he wasn't as happy as as uh, as he led others to believe at the time. So when you saw a smile on a face on his face, it was he was hiding that sad expression. They got to Barcelona on August third, and that brought the tunnel tour to a close. As we mentioned previously. Shows for the U.S. in the fall never materialized, and instead, come September, they embarked on the Amnesty Tour. Yes, and uh, it was with, uh, what, it was Yusu Indoor, Tracy Chapman, Peter Gabriel, Sting. and Sting. And they went out, they did about six weeks worth of shows all over the world. I mean, he was playing places he had never, ever played before. And uh, gave him a chance to, to really work with other musicians for the first time, really, ever. Well, some people have long suggested that Sting was responsible for the later breakup of the band. I don't know if that's true. I think that Bruce even himself had said at some point that Sting had said to him, you know, you can go out and do different things because, of course, Sting had been in the police and now he was doing his solo thing. But whatever the case may be, this was the final six weeks that the E Street Band would play together for quite a while, at least in terms of a tour. And I think they did some really good stuff on this tour. As Flynn noted, there were shows in a lot of places that Bruce had never played before and still has never played again. Has he, the first amnesty show that's in a, in a far off spot for Bruce was in Budapest. I, he hasn't been back there even in the reunion era. No, he has not. I no. guess. Uh, no, <laughs> then they, went, they went down the Costa Rica where he, he has never played again, but and I the, think uh, the, the, they come to the United States. He does a show at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, which is gone. That was a show that I saw. Did, did you see that show? No, I did not. I was uh, I was still in high school, but uh, I remember my drama sponsor, drama club sponsor, was a real was also a big fan. And the next day, he told me the set list, and he said, "Oh, I was thinking of I should have just you know called you to see if you wanted to go with me." But but alas, we opportunity missed. But he had a good time. So it was a good, Mike, it, it was a good one. Yeah, Mike had a good time at that one. 
I'll tell you, the Jungle Land that night, we were so happy. Now, I had seen shows in 84, but I'd only seen Jungle Land once. And then, of course, it wasn't really played in the U.S. in 85. And when Jungle Land returned, that was that was such an exciting moment. And that was a really good, tight set. He had the horns with him in Philly. From there, then they went to L.A., where the show was played very late into the evening because of a conflict with Yom Kippur. And then they went to the Bay Area for Oakland. Which, His birthday. Uh, his birthday, right? And he did a, and Sting wasn't at that show, so they did a. He, his set was a little bit longer, and he did, he did Tunnel of Love, he did I Ain't Got No Home, and it was a little bit more interesting at that one. I love the war opening to that show. That's a good one. He did that later on on the on the Rising tour. Yeah, it really. That's a that's a great opener. Now you would from, think, yeah. For after they leave the states on the Amnesty tour, they go to Tokyo, which I think that was Bruce's actual. No, he was there. He played Tokyo on the Joe tour. Yes, he did. Yeah. But that was seven back. years later. That was seven years later. That was solo. He's not been back with a band to Japan since that show on the Amnesty tour in 88. Right. A bit strange that they've never returned to Japan in all these years, 32 years and counting. From there, they went to places that they had never played before in quite unique setting. From there, they went to Harare, Zimbabwe. They went to the Ivory Coast. I mean, these are places that probably weren't seeing a lot of rock concerts to begin with. Of course, that was sort of the whole point of the tour was to go into places uh, and and expose the people to this type of artistry and the message of the tour, which was that human rights were for everyone. But, you know, I think the audiences in those places were different than Bruce was used to seeing. Right. And in, in, in Harare, Zimbabwe, they had actually... The, the crowd was a lot more black than he would ha- he had ever seen in the United States, at least. And I remember Clarence talking about it in the HBO documentary about the tour that he was really moved by looking out and, and seeing so many so many black faces. Yeah, you would think that would be really powerful, not only for Clarence, but for the entire band to be exposed to an audience like that and it, it just have it be so different than what they were normally accustomed to and to be bringing the music and the artistry to a totally new set of people. Well, you're absolutely correct. And of course, part of seeing uh, a plane to, to crowds that never seen them before, they were they were he reverted the set back to basically a kind of a greatest hits set list at the time. Uh, you know, Born USA and Promised Land, Cover Me, Cadillac Ranch, Dancing in the Dark, Glory Days. So you know, whatever new frontiers he he was doing earlier in in the year, he was. He was back to his old his old uh, safe spaces by, by the end by the Amnesty tour. Well, much like with East Berlin, you would not expect the performer to go into the Ivory Coast and play a bunch of rarities. You know, I don't think that Janie that they're going to pull out Janie. Don't you lose heart there? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But uh, but I'm sure the audiences love what they got. Well, there is something this being said of giving the people what they want. And I'm sure in those places, the stuff that they knew was his greatest hits. If they knew anything, who it's hard to even say. Uh, certainly, those were, that was truly uncharted territory for Bruce. Right. Play, playing Argentina and playing Brazil and Ivory Coast and Zimbabwe. Yeah, it was totally uncharted in a whole bunch of different ways. So and you mentioned Argentina, that's where they wound up. They played a show in Buenos Aires on October 15th, 1988, which this is a total aside, but also happened to be the night that Kirk Gibson hit the famous home run in game one of the 88 (laughs) World Series. Of course you remember that. I do remember it well. (laughs) 
I would think that that October 15th show may eventually be an archive release. We know they have it. Part of the show has been released as part of the amnesty releases that they've done. And that's a really good show. And of course it marked the last performance of the East street band, at least on a regular tour for 11 years. Yeah. So when you watch it now, I mean, there's a, actually there's 90 minutes or at least Bruce's whole set rather is available on online feed video. It's, I mean, I'm sure it's on YouTube. I'm not a video guy, so I haven't really checked it on YouTube. But it was a very powerful performance when you look out. They were jumping. I mean, I, I did see the video, you know, 20-some-odd years ago. And I've seen it more recently because the and the energy in that stadium was truly remarkable. It, it, I mean, watching Born in the USA is pretty powerful. I mean, Bruce is really into it. And then just to see just, I mean, it looks like thousands and thousands and thousands of fans just hopping almost in unison. Or And when they're not in unison, it looks like they're hopping in waves. I it's also, such, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's such a, the energy is just over the top. I mean, you just can't, I can't imagine that happening in the United States. No, that would not happen in the United States. South American audiences are very distinct from America, uh, North American audiences. Another thing from that show, and that is on that Amnesty release, which is actually titled Released, the Human Rights Concerts, Human Rights Now, is an incredible version of I'm on Fire, where Bruce led the crowd at the end uh, in an extended sing-along. It's really effective, and that's actually one of my favorite versions of I'm on Fire. Yeah, and in, and in places where Bruce's all of Bruce's music wasn't as familiar to people, it was an easy song to to implement a, a sing along with with the huge crowds. Oh yeah, totally effective too. I think another thing to mention about these shows before we depart is that there were a group of songs that Bruce did with the other artists. Every night he did "Every Breath You Take" with Sting, and then the show closed with the other artists joining the E Street Band for Chimes of Freedom and Get Up, Stand Up, both of which were highly effective and I think a really interesting way to bring the evening to a close considering what they were trying to say with the tour. Well, well, if you're going to bring up Every Breath You Take, Bruce duetting with Sting on Every Breath You Take, you know, you got to mention Sting coming on stage with Bruce and the band to do The River. That is true, although not as remarkable for me. Yeah, that is certainly true. I mean, that Every Breath You Take uh, arrangement that they did was... That was something special as well. I mean, I know I say that a lot, but that was probably one of the most moving songs of, of the night. Well, that's a great song. I mean, obviously, it's a massive hit. It's probably the biggest song of Sting's career and the police's career. And the way Bruce performed on that song was really, really well done. I don't know that that's one you would have necessarily thought that he would guest on, quite frankly. No, not at all. But they made it work. Um Bruce really brought a lot of a lot of passion to his part, and the the song w became more of a rocker than it than it was on the on on the radio. And with that, the Amnesty tour came to a close there in Buenos Aires, and well, really, basically that chapter of the E Street Band and yeah, you know, Bruce's it, it, career. It ended a chapter of the E Street Band, as Flynn is saying, and as our fifth episode looked at, from here Bruce would go on an extended hiatus. Yes, he would. And we, we really we went pretty in depth talking about that one uh, a few months ago. So we definitely you should definitely check that out if you haven't. Yeah. If you want to hear about the period uh, with the band being dismissed and what led up to the release of Human Touch and Lucky Town in 1992, I'm glad to say we got 
good feedback on that episode and check it out. And of course, we always enjoy talking about the 92 albums and tours. So go with that. So with that, I think we've wrapped up another episode. Episode 10 is in the can, Flynn. What do you think? I think it's we had fun tonight, that's for sure. I have fun every time we do one of these. Hopefully the audience is having fun, too, listening to them. I hope so. I hope so. So let's just end with a little bit of business as we normally do. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. And on the web, we're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.